This is Coffee with Jim, influential healthcare leaders and discussions and topics for today. So delighted to have with us this morning, Dr. Anulala, Associate Professor, Medicine, Cardiology and Population, Health Science and Policy. Today's title is The Power of Self-Observership in the Path to Success. Thanks so much, Anu, for being with us this morning to have this conversation. Thanks so much, Jim, for having me. I'm really excited to talk with you about this pretty big, but you know, very important topic and would love to articulate our shared intention for this podcast to start off, which is just that anyone who's listening hopefully can walk away with some concrete concepts and practices that appeal to me and that I certainly aspire to incorporate into my everyday life to build resilience and increase fulfillment. And you have years of success in doing that and lots of experience. So delighted to dig in more on that. But before we do that, a little bit of a curveball for you. A couple of rapid fire questions. Ready? I'm ready. <laughs> for a family vacation, mountains or beach? Ooh, beach. Okay. And if I understand correctly, you've just come back from a recent vacation. Do you want to share right. any highlights about that? We, my husband and I uh, left our kids at home and we went to Paris for the French Open for a few days. That was my husband's dream. And I'm grateful that that was his dream because I get to go along. <laughs> and we got to see Nadal and Djokovic in that quarterfinal match, which was pretty epic. And then we got to eat some delicious food and drink some wonderful wine. And then we came back and the kids were also okay because it was during their school week. So it wasn't like we were abandoning them in any way. So it was really a kind of magical little getaway. Uh, what a wonderful opportunity sounds like for you and your husband. Next one, favorite leader, anyone alive, mm -hmm. dead that you known, met, not met, who jumps to mind? Oh my goodness. That is a curveball. The, I don't know her personally, obviously, but I love the work of Brene Brown and what she has instilled in culture, teaching how to lead using vulnerability as a central tenet of how she operates and how to, how to recognize that true authentic leadership and strength comes from vulnerability. She's kind of revolutionized how we think about leadership in the workplace. And so I think we're indebted to her. There are many people that come to mind. There's also a woman at Mount Sinai. Her name is Anatine Galines, who I think leads with equal parts vulnerability, empathy, and discipline and authority. So she has this beautiful combination of all four, and she's the director of population health science and policy. And I love the way she interacts with people. Wow, great thoughts there, Anu. As we continue our dialogue, if anyone else comes to mind, wonderful, feel free to add them. Vulnerability in medicine, as we know, has often been eschewed. In years past, especially if and when a physician was suffering, the culture and sometimes the practice had been to just tough it out, suck it up, as they say, rather than seek out support. Physicians in the past were not supposed to show weakness, so the times are modestly changing, and there's a crack showing up in the foundation of that type of thinking. So in one little story I know you know that I've shared in the past was when I was uh, working with a particular health system and their board, the CEO, the system-level CEO, admitted in front of everyone as they were focusing on wellness that a, a Sentinel event took place at one of their hospitals, and he said he just had to stop in the hallway at one point and just cry. That hadn't happened before, that kind of admission. So what has allowed this type of behavior to show up now and, and what's contributing to this shift? 
Yeah, I love that you said the crack that you brought up when you asked. And I think in many ways, COVID has cracked us open. Like it has challenged traditional roles and paradigms of physicians or clinicians in general serving as providers and patients being those who are provided for. I think that kind of setup lends itself to burnout because no relationship can just be one-sided. COVID has taught us that we have to recognize our humanness, whether we're in the role of provider or provided for, it's a two-way street. And so there's this collective need to be nurtured, to be understood, to be cared for, and to be vulnerable. Really, this is one of the silver linings of COVID that has come out of the pandemic, which is a, a global recognition of the power of and the importance of vulnerability. This is, you know, I already mentioned how much I love Brene Brown's work, and I think she has really been a thought leader in this space. And you've even touched on the why, like why should folks embrace vulnerability? Is there anything about that that you would add? I think from my own experience, when I break down and cry, whether it has to be sharing a difficult diagnosis or an outcome with patients and families, I feel stronger. I feel more aligned with my work. I feel integrated with who I am as a person and as a human. And that allows me to feel more grounded and present. Uh, you know, just recently I have following a heart transplant patient of mine who needed repeat surgery on a valve uh, that was leaking, also dialysis. And she's already been through an enormously tough journey. You know, she was undergoing dialysis in preparation for the surgery and she was nervous. And we sat together and we both kind of just cried because I followed her so closely for the years that she's, you know, I've become close to her. And we thought about how this wasn't quote unquote fair, but it is what it is, you know, or it was what it was. It was amazing to us, to me really in that moment when we both were sitting there you know, just crying really, that that vulnerability allowed for acceptance and that acceptance allowed for peace. And in that peace, I think we make space for healing in a more holistic sense. There's so many reasons to embrace vulnerability, but that's one of the reasons I do. Well, you make those, those connections. It makes so much sense when you when you do it like that. And, and speaking of connection, you've then been answering what makes this topic so meaningful for you? Sure. Thanks. I think as I've shared, I've become so keenly aware. Maybe it's amidst the pandemic. Maybe it's me seeking to evolve more to be a better version of myself, but I'm so keenly aware of the strength and the connection that vulnerability brings. All of us, that's what we desire, right? We desire meaningful connection whether it be with friends or family, colleagues, and then most importantly with ourselves. So first is that meaningful connection. I think second, vulnerability allows the space for self-care. Maybe hear me say this a lot, and you've taught me a lot about this, is, is creating this space. I think the most important example of self-care is actually, you know, me being a cardiologist, is how, you know, the heart's responsibility is to provide blood and nutrients and oxygen and to pump it to the rest of the body. Before it does that, or simultaneous to when it does that, it has arteries that are reserved for its own nurturing and preservation, and those are called the coronary arteries. If there is a blockage in one of those arteries, then that's what we call a heart attack. That's kind of like an analogy for burnout, for example. If we're not nurturing ourselves and we're not taking the space and time for ourselves, then how are we expected to do anything for others? I don't know. I think that's kind of a neat example for the need of self-care. And maybe in that recent recognition, this topic means more to me now than ever. 
the pivot you just made to burnout now, we know in the last couple of years, that's been front and center. It had been on the radar before, of course, the pandemic and, and COVID really made us all fully mindful of that. You know, the opposite of that, we might call it engagement, wellness, wholeness, or being grounded. Tell us more. I know you're, you're very good at being thoughtful about this, and you have some very specific experiences around being grounded. Tell us more. When are you most grounded? Oh, that's like the constant dream <laughs> to be, <laughs> to spend more time feeling grounded than not grounded. You know, you're right. This concept of burnout is so real. And in order to avoid it or really stay ahead of it so it doesn't consume us, we need to build a resilience plan. Um, and I got that kind of concept from this book called From Strength to Strength by Arthur Brooks. For me personally, as I've transitioned to this mid-career level where I am mentoring and I am mothering, hopefully setting an example for others in the way that I live my life, while I'm simultaneously trying to grow and figure things out for myself on an ongoing basis, I'm so conscious of the power and the beauty and the liberation there is in self-awareness. In order to have that, it requires looking at oneself, and that requires vulnerability and courage and openness. Herein comes the, the noticing that you've helped me articulate. You know, who is Anu? What is she talking about right now? What is she seeking? What is important to her? What does she value? Is she doing the things that are aligned with those values? Vulnerability is the power to say, no, she's not aligned right now. But even more importantly, yes, she is aligned today or right now. And so if I talk about work-life harmony, which is what I aspire to have or recognize, am I living that? Let's say this weekend, I didn't do much work, you know, as it pertained to all the things that I have to do, but I was able to be really present with my kids. Do I beat myself up for not being a good researcher or, you know, not having attended to some of the things that I needed to at work or at the hospital? Or do I recognize that, hey, this was a day that I am playing the role of a mom and a wife and a daughter and a sister that's okay. And that's a part of the harmony of my life, which is trying to notice and not judge. And I think, again, this room, this makes room or space for peace. I love that you keep coming back to that allowing space. One of the hardest things for people, especially busy physicians to do is carve out that space, right? As you just articulated, there's right. such a, a, a competition for time. And so many folks, you know, say to me in the coaching dialogues, they're like, okay, great, Jim, you know, what should I read or what should I do? And I know, you know, it's like, it's easier to do the reading or an action like that than it is to sit quietly and carve out that safe space. Right? Yeah, totally. And that leads us to the next part of our discussion. You've been very helpful in terms of strategic <laughs> understanding of these concepts and breaking them down into tactical, concrete takeaways. Take us further. What contributes to your being grounded? What specific actions or other ideas would you share with those listening about how they can help themselves? You know, thank you. I think first is just recognizing that you want to feel grounded. That was a word that came to mind, you know, to me. And now that it's become a priority, I try to think about, okay, then you do the noticing. When do I feel grounded? Like you said, and then I'm pretty practical, right? I like to have kind of evidence-based ways in which we can feel grounded. And, and I borrow concepts from all different kinds of books. And one concept I liked was the sharing of six evidence-based ways that we can complete what's called the stress response cycle. And this comes from the Nagowski sisters book on burnout, because when we complete the stress response cycle, 
we're allowed to come back to our own true nature, which at its core, everyone is truly happy, whole, and complete. It's with all the other stuff that gets in the way that we forget that. I hope that this will be helpful for anyone who's listening because they've been really helpful for me. So six like tangible, concrete ways that you can allow yourself to complete the stress response cycle and then kind of feel liberated, have that space and then feel grounded. So that's the connection for me at least. So number one is physical activity. So for me, this could be dancing like crazy with my kids while I'm cooking or going for a run, you know, an orange theory workout or doing a great yoga workout. I've noticed that I always feel happier when I'm spent some time moving in a way that I'm, you know, like I'm, I'm breaking a sweat. So that's number one. Number two is a creative outlet. This is actually a really profound point. And I've really come to appreciate its importance in my life with our work at the Journal of Cardiac Failure with um, Rob Menz, because this has afforded a kind of creative medium to convey and communicate scientific content where you would think, oh, that's a scientific journal. Like how could that afford any creativity? But it's allowed us to think about doing things differently from redesigning the cover to launching new paper types to new initiatives where we interact with families and patients to share their, their stories. So thinking about the delivery of high quality science in a creative way has brought me much joy. The third thing is laughing. And this you can't necessarily plan for, obviously, but the mere recognition of its importance can be helpful. You know, maybe you're more inclined to laugh at a funny story and then take note of it afterwards so you can recall laughing fondly and then smile too throughout your day. So I'm more keenly aware of when I am laughing because I recognize the importance of it. Uh, the fourth thing is crying. So we've already talked about this. I think this is often seen as the most superficial or basic sign of vulnerability, but it's actually just such an essential human expression of emotion. So I love crying. <laughs> I think it's a release. It allows me to come home, whether it's in empathy or it's in sadness or it's in joy. There are times where I'll cry, let's say during a Gita class that I take on Sundays, which is a sort of spiritual class that I get to be a part of. That release, it allows for a reset and it allows for space. The fifth thing is physical affection. So don't worry, I won't get you know too racy here on this podcast, but boy, does a long, meaningful hug go a, a really long way. I think it's quoted in their book, at least, that a 21-second hug can release endorphins or allow for the release of endorphins. And when I remember to do this, it really, really works. And then lastly is deep breathing. This is so important because it's so readily accessible to us. We're so lucky. We're born with our breath. It stays with us until we die. And, you know, Jay Shetty has talked about this a lot as well. It's ever at our disposal to take advantage of, to help us calm down, to recenter ourselves. And I love this concept. Again, I'm just showing you how many people I borrow concepts from, but Eckhart Tolle has shared that one single mindful breath rooted in awareness is a meditation. So I think that has been like such a liberating concept for me to embrace. It's just one breath I've meditated. So those are the six things. I think those are helpful concepts and they allow me to feel grounded. I love the structure that you have put together. You're very thoughtful about it. Real concrete stuff we can take away. Frankly, I hear and appreciate your authenticness in all of this. I think this is really you. Great takeaways for, for so many of us. You've mentioned the noticing and how it's become so important to you. 
thank you, <laughs> first of all. I love the concept, you know, in Sanskrit, we often say, you know, be the witness to what your thoughts are, you know, like witness what's happening in your mind, witness what you're doing. So that's the noticing, like you've taught me to articulate. And when you do that, again, it affords that space. So that's the constant theme that I keep bringing forth, which is what I aspire to have more of. Because I think when we have the space between our mind and what we are doing and what we are thinking, that monkey mind, which we call oftentimes in Sanskrit, uh, it, it stops hopping around from branch to branch. That space, again, affords composure and peace. And that's helping me. I try to, to do that more and more often. I, when I do, I'm, I'm grateful that I do. And I know you as a great clinician know that learning more about each patient, you've shared this with me, it's we have to slow down and notice what's going on with the patient before we can think about what options are for next steps. And that touches on bigger picture harmonizing. What do you notice when you're, we're not living up to our own advice and or standards and or expectations? Yeah, I mean, there are many times it's easy to sit and talk about these mm. concepts on a podcast, you know, when you're talking with a friend, but it's it's another thing to put it into real practice. So this happens to me all the time. It is my life's aspiration to notice more. The mere articulation of it and the prioritization of it and the appreciation for when I notice allows me to be more forgiving of myself, less judgmental. Hopefully, you know, don't beat myself up, but rather just notice, oh, okay, this is when I was not aligned and I was not aware and this is not. Hopefully next time I won't act in such a way. So when you, that requires like actual carving out time to do that. And so I don't think we do that, right? We have schedules, we have our calendars set, but we don't actually carve out time for ourselves in that way. And that's what I'm hoping, you know, I'm getting better at it and I hope to continue to get better at it. So many people struggle with that. Thanks for bringing that up. Yeah. In my dialogues with folks, that's one of the hardest things. It's ask them to stop, carve out that quiet time. That's so hard. It's easier to go read an article right? Because it's doing, it's concrete. I can measure it. It's a task. I can write off the task list versus, okay, I just sat down for five or 10 or 15 minutes quietly to reflect on where I am today. And I have nothing to show for it concretely, right? That's what the the feeling could be, right? And it's seductive to give into the, I'm going to check off something on the task list. I also appreciate you use the word forgiving or, and or forgiveness with folks. And when I'm having dialogues with clients, reminding people, you know, forgive yourself for some of the times Mm -hmm. when things didn't work out so well. Sometimes that really takes people back and you can notice they can get emotional about that because we, I keep falling down in these areas and okay, I can remember that. All right. I wasn't my best self in that moment. And I'm still, okay. I'm still a good person. I love the way you put that. I love the way you said I wasn't my best self because it wasn't, you're not incriminating something that's about you, but it was the rec- in that comment, you have the recognition that there's a better version of you. That's the point, right? Yes. Staying concrete among some of these topics that can be a very abstract. What else can a busy cardiologist leader like yourself take away from this discussion that that's practical and useful? First of all, I, I want to make sure that it's not that I do these things every day, but these are the things I aspire to do for sure. So, you know, those six, the stress response cycle, I think with those six tools, being mindful of that, I think is super duper helpful and readily available to us, whether it's taking that single breath, you know, crying, laughing, a creative outlet, moving that long hug Uh, beyond those things. What also helps is just writing things down. And this might be why coaching is so effective because there's someone with skills helping you notice and you are carving time out for yourself to notice how you are behaving in given situations. 
And that is so helpful to get out of that sticky web of thought, you know, or that the monkey mind, as we say, those are some concrete, practical things. The more we carve out specific time for ourselves and then have those tangible tools to aspire to, at least in the beginning, is a good start. Well, that's very concrete and very helpful. Coming to a wrap up point in our discussion today, I asked you off the cuff about some leaders that come to mind. What else might you add in terms of what makes a great leader today? I think it's someone who acknowledges the power of living an integrated life, where home is not diametrically opposed to work, where vulnerability is embraced and really kind of celebrated, where there's a recognition of everyone needing to grow constantly. And that doesn't mean like a promotion to the next step, but grow as an individual, as a person to be the best version of themselves, as you alluded to previously, where there are discussions to improve the environment and culture rather than just accelerating individual careers. All of these concepts allow for sustainability, fulfillment, and growth. Nicely put. The more we all talk about all of this, what works for us, the more it will be recognized as a priority. And hopefully the more quote unquote well and whole and complete we'll all feel in different aspects of our life, whether it's at work or home and, uh, and beyond those. What a pleasure speaking with you. Likewise, so true. Thanks for bringing out all of these ideas with us today. So delighted to have this time with you as always. Continued wonderful work and presence, Anu. Grateful for this time together. Thank you. This is Coffee with Jim, Dialogues with Influential Healthcare Leaders. Today we were speaking with Dr. Anu Lala. Join us for more podcasts at jamesmckenna.org, Spotify, and Google Podcasts.